0: Uh, not since uh, Bombay Dreams had I felt such love sure. in a show and in a theater. Right. This is like going to be the best day of my. This is the best sure. day of my life, as far as my career goes. Yeah. I got two offers in one day. Amazing. Hello, Theatre Art Life podcast listeners. Today we're sharing with you an interview led by one of our contributors, Justin Mabadi. Justin Mabadi is a creative director and television director with experience in the production and development of live stage shows, live shows for television and television formats. He has worked in 20 countries on shows of every scale. We hope that you enjoy listening to his interview.
1: All right, so Jason Bassett is a universally loved New Yorker. He's been married to another Jason for nearly three years now and is a veteran Broadway stage manager. He's been running shows for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Some highlights include Footloose, Hairspray, In the Heights, and a very special workshop of Fat Camp. <laughs> <laughs> he now serves as production supervisor to multiple companies of Hamilton around the world. Jason Bassett, thanks for sitting down with me. hmm Um, I think it's important to explain that the podcast is geared towards entertainment professionals around the world, folks in the Philippines, technicians in Canada, stage managers in Australia, actors on cruise ships, etc. So even though it may feel like your everyday life, I think your story is an important story to tell. So maybe start with telling us a bit about where you grew up, where Uh, you come from. I grew
0: up in California with some horses uh, in between... Sacramento and Tahoe, a tiny little community, and my family was sort of into uh, horse shows. And I considered myself free labor to clean (laughs) out stalls and to sort of help take care of horses and things. And when I turned 18, I was ready to uh, live in the city, so I moved to Los Angeles. i had always been sort of uh, tangentially interested in in high school, in drama, Mm -hmm. um, and took drama for three and a half out of the four years of high school. And so I went to a dramatic arts college in uh, Los Angeles called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, thinking I was going to be a performer
1: um, and had a great love for Shakespeare and had a great love for the classics. And so you moved to LA when you were 18 for school, basically. Yeah. yeah. And it was a four-year program? It was a three-year program, and it was a program where you
0: got invited back after each year. So the first year was like... I think it was like 300 students and the next year was like 125 students or 60 students. I think they went, took it, made a dramatic cut. And then the last year was like a production year where you just had like 10 students. Gotcha. And I did all three years and then got out of school thinking, you know, where am I going? What am I doing? And then what happened? I just sort of didn't. Uh, connect with the industry oh. like where the where I met the industry was a very uncomfortable place mm-hmm. and so ultimately you know had to have a survival job did retail did some other stuff and eventually had a friend who was doing a, a sh- tiny little show off I didn't, it's not even off Broadway it's like a, like whatever equity waiver is right in LA who said can you help me out and I said I I'm happy to do whatever I can. And he said, I need a stage manager. I said, I don't really know what that
1: is. But I'm happy to help, you know, be two extra hands to help you get your show up. So up until then, though, you've been acting at school. Yeah. And also taking other kinds of courses that were sort of geared towards theater in general. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, you know, whatever kind of physical courses, whether it be fencing or Mm -hmm. whether it be, um, you know, just things that were geared towards the business. Yeah, But it was also all geared towards stage. None of it was geared towards television or film. Which is a unique thing to have in LA. Yes. And which is why I probably was confused right. when I got out of school because, there, you know, I, although I had been offered sort of a foundation of acting,
1: right.
0: I had no technique in television or film and had no idea
1: where to meet that industry, or how, how I sort of got involved in that industry. So when you went to stage manage for your first time, mm-hmm did you have any sensibility about what that actually took to do? Or were you were you underneath that person in a sense? No. I, or you were just thrown into... I was thrown in. You do it. I was absolutely thrown in. And there
0: was... I mean, it was such a sort of ragtag troop to begin with right. that, that it was just we liked each other. Mm-hmm. And I was very eager to sort of do whatever the director asked me to do. And if that meant be at rehearsals, I would go to rehearsals right. if that meant... But I wasn't sort of noting and dictating and, you know asking questions about how does this set work and, you know, lighting and stuff. I was just there. And then when we finally moved into the theater, I literally walked, I I shuddered to think how ignorant I was when I walked (laughs) in, but but I just walked into theater like everybody else without any sort of preparation or expectations. Mm -hmm. I just sort of said, what do you need me to do? And slowly they started building this show that I realized, oh, I'm going to be, like actually saying go on a headset. Right. I'm going to, like we had playback. We had real to real playback right. rather than a band. Um, and it was a musical. Mm-hmm. We had very, we had, you know, 10 instruments to do lighting. So there was no,
1: there was no sort of pressure. Right. Um, well, con- in contrast to what you do now, but yeah. at the time I'm sure you probably felt there was some, you had to kind of rise to to
0: the challenge. I felt, I, actually what I felt was the necessity to have somebody like myself in the room. Right. I did sort of see the need for the job in the room, but I didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was just doing the best I could. So right. I didn't really feel pressure. I just felt like, oh, I'll do this. You know, right. this, and, and if this works, if not, then I'll do something else. Right. And that's sort of how I got
1: introduced to stage managing. So after your first job, though, you felt in love with stage management? No. no, oh. <laughs> No. I mean, and I was barely getting paid any, right.
0: any real money. And then that show ran for a couple of months. It moved to what was a larger venue on Melrose mm-hmm. in L.A. And uh, they said, do you want to go do that too? And I said, yes, but I need to get paid more money. Right. And there are certain things that I don't want to do anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like mop the stage <laughs> and things right. like that. And that was... Uh, bit of an arrogant sort of point of view on my part, because it's like a little, tiny little theater that right. needed all hands on deck all the time. Sure. Um, but I was sort of saying, well, they need me, so I'm gonna mm-hmm. say these are the things I don't want to do anymore. Did they agree? Yeah, they did, <laughs> uh, surprisingly, <laughs> they agreed. And uh, so it was a very, and it was, again, it was a show that um, did well, mm-hmm. and then the producer, who was a very green, new producer, went and found some people in New York in the hopes that he could move it off-Broadway. Right. And so then we started talking about what that meant. Mm-hmm. And he, they basically said, do you want to go to off-Broadway with it? And I said, I would I would move to New York. I mm-hmm. didn't have anything tying me to LA. Right. I didn't know New York at all, but right. I was like, you know what? I would move to
1: New York. So at this point you're 21, 22? No, God, I'm like probably 27? Oh, okay, cool. So I'm I mean, older, yeah. Right. Yeah, my career didn't get going till late. You were hanging out in LA for a few years. I totally was gig.
0: just hanging out in LA for quite some time, and that's why you know that when this gig came along, I was like, "Yeah, I got nothing else to do." Time to go, yeah. And that's why when New York came along, it was really sort of like, "Yeah, I, I'm LA's not working for me." So you up and moved. I up and moved. The producer put me up in his apartment in in Stuyvesant Town for like three months. Mm-hmm. I slept on his couch. They really didn't have any solid dates for the show. Mm -hmm. And then after about three months, he basically said, the show's not coming. And
1: I need you to get off of my couch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I had to go find other jobs. Right. And basically the assistant director on the show that that didn't come, Mm -hmm. she had a sister who worked at NYU at the Tisch School of the Arts, who was the production manager, and her name was Ann Matthews, and she Uh, put me in touch with Anne. Mm -hmm. Anne's sister, Deborah, put me in touch with Anne. And I called Anne to say, you know, do you need stage managers? And NYU at that point, and I don't know what they do now, but at that point they were farming in stage managers to work on first year productions, second year productions, third year productions. And I did, she hired me for a first year production. I had a good time Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it paid like a more than a couple hundred dollars a week. So I was like making more than unemployment and <laughs> only had to work from seven at night to, to 11 at night. Right. And thought this was a great gig. So I took it and did it. And then they liked me. So they hired me again and again and again and again and again. And pretty soon, Anne would get calls from tiny little theaters around outside of New York, in the right. Poconos or whatever, right. to say, We need a stage manager for the summer. Right. Um, right. And she would recommend me. And I went and,
1: summer I would go do something. So right now, you're a self-made stage manager. Right? Completely. <laughs> you had gone to school for theater, but it was not yes. stage management-focused. That's right. And at this point in your career, you're starting to go up against other stage managers who, say, have had stage management uh, education specifically, or graduate school education, and things of that nature. And so now you're in New York, and you're getting into the business a bit more deeply. Yeah. How did you... F- did you find that your skill set was sometimes, I mean, I'm sure better in some ways versus others or because you're probably more malleable to the situation or did you even start to even think about that at all? I didn't really, honestly,
0: I never took it like it was going to be a career for me. Gotcha. So it was it was a job I was doing mm-hmm. um, and I enjoyed being in the room mm-hmm. when people were creating things and I enjoyed helping out, Right. but it never really... I never really came up against, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I, I just sort of continued to do what we thought the show needed. Right. Um, and I enjoyed that. But I had, I, again, I wasn't feeling the pressure of, oh, this is a career choice for mm-hmm. me and I have to impress and mm-hmm. I have to, you know, all those things. So I was
1: still sort of not taking it completely seriously. Getting the job done, so to speak. Yeah. But just sort of doing what needed to be done. Right. But so then you're taking jobs around NYU and the city in bits and pieces. And that's when I started to find out that I really
0: don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, Because there were expectations because Mm -hmm. I would take a job as a stage manager. And so there were certain expectations that naturally went along with it that Mm -hmm. I was unaware of. Because I had only ever been doing this on my own. Right. I'd never had an assistant. Mm -hmm. I'd never worked under anybody else. Mm -hmm. I was just sort of doing my own thing. Sure.
1: And so the and you're a likable guy, so I'm sure it, that in the room you're great, great with people, that's right. right? Yeah. So then, w- w- was there a moment when all of a sudden you were up against a union job, or yes. is that sort of what happened? I'm sure yeah. naturally. Yeah, I got
0: um, <clears throat> I got an equity gig in the Poconos mm-hmm. in a tiny little tiny little mom and pop theater.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so I got my equity card, which I thought would be good for me on some level. I had long since stopped acting, right and was not pursuing it in any real way and got my equity card. And then I was like, what am I going to do with this? Um, But I also sort of realized after that summer in the Poconos that stage managing was beginning to support me Mm -hmm. full time. Mm -hmm. I was doing nothing, little to nothing to look for jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the jobs I were, I was getting were the lowest level and lowest tier of jobs. So so just to have s- somebody who's not 21 doing them, right. it was probably nice for the people. And then to have somebody who could actually sort of get, you know, get, get focused and get
1: things done. Right. I'm very task oriented. Sure. Um, <laughs> even if I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so, but still, so you're in the Poconos. You've yeah. got your first equity stage management job. Yeah. And it was a good experience? Yeah, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. I was
0: calling queues for the first time. I did um, Wait Until Dark. So there were lots of cues to call, mm-hmm. which was great, and I had a director from, I can't remember his name actually, Julian something, but he was from Soho Rep, mm-hmm. who had come up to direct this production, and of course he had expectations, and I just sort of followed his lead, right. but I wasn't putting any kind of a prompt book together, I wasn't mm-hmm. putting any kind of, you know I still was like, wow, there are things, that's when I really realized that there are things that I just don't know what I'm doing, right. I'm faking it. Right. And so when I came back to the city, putting those two thoughts together, one, that I was faking it, and two, that stage managing was supporting me, I felt like I needed to give this a real shot. right? And I needed to
1: go sort of find out
0: how it's done.
1: Right. I read somewhere that you sort of met Steve Beckler yeah. through, I guess, handing your resume in, I imagine. I sent out my resumes to all the Broadway houses,
0: and at this point thinking – this is where I need to go watch somebody who knows how to do it, right. do it. And I got called in by Susan Green, who was on Titanic at the time. She was very good at reaching out to young stage managers mm-hmm. um, and having conversations. And she and I had a great conversation for like an hour. And she took my resume over to the Dodger office and dropped it in front of um, some people over there just to sort of say, he's a good guy. Right. If you need a PA...
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's the perfect candidate. Mm-hmm. And Steve Beckler came through the office. He had been working on Guys and Dolls at the time, uh, which is a Dodger show, right. and then left it. Was leaving it to go do Scarlet Pimpernel. Just by chance, my resume sort of slid in front of him as they, as he said, "Does anybody know any PAs?"
1: Right. And, and
0: voila. And voila, he called me, and we got along famously oh my in God. the interview. And he, uh, in the interview, he said. You know, you have some credits as a stage manager. You've done an off-Broadway show, which I had. Mm-hmm. You you have like all these credits, and your career is starting to move. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to be a PA? Right. And I said, quite honestly, I want to watch somebody who knows what they're doing mm-hmm. do this job. And so that's, I want to <laughs> sort of keep my eyes open my mouth shut and see how it's really done right. by somebody who's been doing it. Right. He loved that answer. Sure.
1: And that was really sort of how I approached the whole thing. That's amazing. So then you were now a PA on Scarlet Pimpernel. Scarlet Pimpernel. Yeah. And what did you, what was, what sort of opened your eyes on that? Um, just like how massive a job
0: it is right. and how much time you have to commit to it and how many plates you have to keep spinning at the same time, whether it be on the technical side or the creative side Mm -hmm. or just the sort of being involved in every conversation and making sure you shape the conversation. Steve, Steve was remarkable at being a... Uh, sort of a—I don't want to say—like a right-hand man to the director. Steve comes from a very old school where the stage manager ran everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when the when you left the rehearsal room, it was the stage manager's show. Right. After that, you didn't have associate directors. You didn't have—you know—the stage manager was right. was the dude. In charge. Um, and so he he was a mover and shaker in a way that I had never seen. Right. Plus, was teching this massive automation show, like Scarlet Pimpernel was overly, way overly designed and had tracks and drops and, th- and, and flippers where scenery <laughs> popped out of the deck. And I mean, it was incredible to watch him tech this show sure. and, and piece by piece. And then I would sort of help him, you know, make sure that actors got to costume. Mm-hmm. He got a costume fitting in that day. He would hand me a list of things to do and be like, here's, here's what I need you to do for Right and then run around and just try to sort of quietly get things done while he was teching the show. So in a way you sort of went back to school, the school of Steve Beckler. It's exactly how I look at it. <laughs> it's exactly how I look at it because I thought I can either go to school mm-hmm. and pay somebody mm-hmm. to teach me how to do this, right. or I can try to get on a show where I can watch somebody and they'll at least pay me a stipend. Right. I think I was making $300 a week, yeah. which was shocking to me, like I was getting paid less to be a PA on a Broadway show than I was to be a stage manager at NYU. Right. Um, right. Exactly. So, and I, and I, there were a couple of times where I had conversations saying, how, how do, I mean, how do people make it? How do people do this? They don't uh, often. They, they, they can't <laughs> you know, afford to. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. And I, I couldn't really afford to, but I wasn't going to give
1: up. Right. I wasn't going to sort of let it go just because I couldn't afford it. I was going to figure out a way. So now you're on Broadway, you're a PA on Broadway. hmm you were, you have a focus on stage management. Mm-hmm. Clearly now there's something about it that you feel like you love.
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: love <Fair is>, therefore <laughs> is not necessarily the word I would be looking for. I think it's fascinating. Right. I think it's uh, challenging.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't, I, you know, there were things that there's more to hate about stage managing than there is to love I about agree. stage yeah. managing The hours are, are hateful. Mm-hmm the complaints you get from people and the anger that comes with it is hateful, yeah. um, but it still becomes a challenge to sort of figure out each piece of it. Sure. And there is, there is a, a reckoning that had to happen within me about this career mm-hmm. that found me and that was continuing to haunt me
1: mm-hmm.
0: even though I sort of decided to sort of go get it. Mm-hmm. I was trying to meet it. Like I was trying to reckon with the idea of being a stage manager. And is this something that I could actually do? Steve was one of the first things Steve ever said to me. Like we did Scarlet Pimpernel together. And then nine months, as soon as I left Scarlet Pimpernel, which as a PA, you leave opening night. Right. I went back to like, let me do some NYU jobs. Let me get a retail job. I was sort of, you know, kicked out of the theater and back to, you know, your usual life. Yeah. Um, and Steve said, "You're going to do Footloose with me, but it doesn't start for like nine months." <laughs> I was like, well, "What am I going to do for nine months?" Thank you. <laughs> um, but in that nine months, you sort of i, I it was really like, "Is this something you're going to do?" Sure. And w- we started Footloose nine months later. And one of the first—I remember it was in pre-production. Steve, I—I I did something that Steve didn't like, and I—and so he had to sit me down and tell me, mm-hmm. you know. This is how you behave, and this is how you react when I tell you to do something. Wow! And it was a very sort of hard conversation for me to have. Sure. But at the same time, in that conversation, he said, listen, this is what I believe about you. He said, I believe you are going to move very quickly through this business, mm-hmm. and you're not going to have a lot of choice about it. It's just going to pop up in front of you. You're going to snag it, and it's going to keep snowballing right. for you he said but you, there are certain things that you're just going to have to come to terms with and mm-hmm. that you don't know everything right <laughs> and that you you you're the guy i hired the guy who was my pa who had his mouth shut and his eyes open is the guy that i hired for footloose and you need to continue to be that guy interesting rather than feeling like you got the gig now right. i'm a second assistant on broadway <laughs> so uh, i had one of those moments and mm-hmm. it only took one of those moments for mm-hmm. me before i was like he's You know, he's, he's offering me sanctuary, right? He's offering me, be your comfortable self that you were as a
1: PA. You don't have to know more than that. I was once told by a woman who I respect greatly, who sat me down, (laughs) but she reminded me that stage managers set the tone. And I think that that, that that's a lesson that people need to learn at some point in their lives about coming to terms with the idea of, okay, everyone's in the room and everyone gets to sort of be creative and be wild and be fun and figure it out in a, you know, a structured environment, a structure, yeah. but you set the structure, you yeah. set the tone, you set the environment. Yeah. And I think it's a really common thing for stage managers to go through is sort of like feel like they're playing catch up to even get where they're trying to aim for. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're there and they're in charge, but they didn't realize it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting because that's,
0: that is something that I will never let go of. that Steve instilled in me was this, idea that you are in a building with 40 artists mm-hmm. and it is your job to try and facilitate right. their art to help them facilitate their art right and when you have 40 artists in the building they're they're bound to sort of get in in each other's way mm-hmm. when it comes to process. Mm-hmm. So somebody wants to do a vocal warm-up, somebody wants to go stretch, somebody wants to do and there are bound to sort of be moments where you have to sort of manage what what this artist gets and right. what this artist gets right. and how far they can go and can we get both of can we get both of your processes done? Right. And that the life that happens in the theater will naturally make its way onto the stage if you can allow life in the theater. Right. I do know stage managers who ha- are <clears throat> so focused mm-hmm. on the rules mm-hmm. of a theater that it's. I have watched it sort of drain the life out of a show right. when, when a, a, a group of rules just sort of descend on top of a the theater. Right. Steve was so amazing at, at finding that balance mm-hmm. between make, helping everybody feel like they're, they're heard they're individuals. Mm-hmm. They're they're unique, and that their problems are unique, and that the way they sort of meet the theater is something that Steve can sort of help individually do. Mm-hmm. And if he bends a rule for one person, it doesn't mean he's breaking the rules all over the theater. Right. It means he's helping an artist sort of make their way to the stage. Right. And you build individual relationships one by one throughout the building
1: that way. Right. And that makes for a very happy building. It's a generosity of spirit, which is sort of, yeah. It's not I wouldn't say rare, but it is important in the world of theater to find a way forward because you do have to put rules down. And yeah. I think it's important that you yeah. sort of draw a line yep. <laughs> so they don't cross this. Yeah. And then you find a way to actually be generous of spirit all the way across the board. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So before we get further into your career, now you're sort of learning about how groups of stage managers work and yeah. how teams work. So, you know, without maybe being too specific about current situations, how do you now look at impressing upon your team the importance of what you're trying to drive forward as a you know production stage manager, production supervisor? How do you sort of build a team now of stage managers below you that, that sort of takes what Steve Beckler taught you? How do you find people? What do you look for? Well, I mean, certainly it's very different in the production supervisor world than it is when
0: I was stage managing. Because mm-hmm. when I when I would go, when I would get a new project mm-hmm. and I would start to sort of put a team together, I have, you know, there are your go-to sort of folks that mm-hmm. you love. Amber Whedon, now Amber White, mm-hmm. is somebody who I've always adored mm-hmm. because she's, she just, we just synced as soon as I met her with In the Heights. Right. And she and I synced up pretty quickly. And so she's uh, often been my first choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll find that most stage managers, you know, you, you want someone who is, who compliments you as far as the enormity of the job, somebody who sort of excels in something where maybe you don't. Right. And personality-wise, you just want somebody who you enjoy spending the day with because yeah, you spend all day long every day um, with these people. And so, you know, so personality-wise, you want somebody who you enjoy. Sure. Who can help with the atmosphere. Sure. So there, obviously there's several things you look for, but I sort of realized two things. There was a lesson that Steve taught me early in Footloose that as an actor misbehaving or an actor doing something, and I would have a conversation, and then I would take the information to Steve, and then I would go back and sort of, I was sort of being a go between, or a buffer between Steve and the actor and the, and the issue. At one point, Steve said, don't get between me and the actor. And it sort of took me aback. And he said, you know, he said, you don't hurt. If you get between me and the actors, you take away the opportunity for, my, for me to have a relationship with the actors. Interesting. And it's important that I have that right. relationship. So it's important that, you know, we identify the problems and you bring them to me, but that you allow me to decide what the solution is. Right. And that don't for a minute think that this job, all of this job, belongs to me, the stage manager, mm-hmm. all of it. Mm-hmm. I will delegate things to you and I will let you sort of take care of things. Right. But there is a reason you're an assistant right. and not the production stage manager. Wow. And that was another like sobering lesson mm-hmm. about, you know, this is not it is a team job and mm-hmm. a team effort. But at the end of the day, the stage manager takes responsibility for everything that walks out of their office. Yes. Every paperwork, every email, every you know, decision that mm-hmm. comes out of their office, the stage manager ultimately mm-hmm. has to answer for. Absolutely. And so when that's a conversation I have, right. At the beginning of putting a team together and that what I learned early or after about two or three shows, I learned it was important to sit the team down before we started and let them know that mm-hmm. one, that, that it's my job. Right. And two, that please don't try to dazzle me. Mm-hmm. Like the more you think about like, I'm, I need to build my relationship with the stage manager who he hires me for every show. Da, da, da. Right. The more you sort of move in that direction, mm-hmm. the more you become something I need to manage. Right. And what I don't need are assistants that I need to manage. Absolutely. That the more you keep your mouth shut and your eyes open mm-hmm. and do what I ask you to do, the more we begin to build trust. Right. And then after a while, like Amber and I don't have never really need to like later we didn't need to talk about too much because Mm -hmm. she would just say, I know what I know what he wants me to do. Right. And she would come to me and say, do you want me to do this? Mm -hmm. We don't have that conversation now because she's the PSM of Hamilton. (laughs) But early on it was, she and I were talking about every, everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, every tiny thing. Like how, how, what is our move going to be? Like, Mm -hmm. how do we want to? So she became my partner pretty early, but
1: that's amazing. It's good to have someone like that on your team. Yeah, I feel lucky to have found her. I was um, speaking to a group of students, I think last month, and one thing that always comes up, and I'm interested to hear your take, is that you often find that people are willing to kind of do anything for any amount of money mm-hmm. um, for as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I always tell them is that your you need to get paid. <laughs> that stage management, you know, you could, you know, it's okay to take one or two jobs. It's okay to do. You, you know, to get your name and you're out there in some yes. capacity. But at some point, you know, especially living in New York and not to say, you know, it's not expensive anywhere else, but for me in my experience, particularly here, if you're not making money, you're not going to be able to, to last long. Yeah. You know, you'll you'll sort of fall out of rhythm and fall out of the ability to pay for your, you know, your bills and stuff. Especially when students are, are paying X amount of dollars, sometimes $100,000 yeah. to go to school for it. Yeah. At some point, you need to return on your investment. And so, I know that that's still quite tricky here to find a way forward to come in and find jobs. But how would you suggest sort of folks who are coming out of school, even not necessarily out of school particularly, but mm-hmm. and making it to New York and then taking a step up? Yeah, God, it's the number one
0: question, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's like, it's such a hard, it's such a hard question to answer because, and, and if if I'm sort of, pressured to give a quick answer i tell people say yes to everything for Mm -hmm. the first 15 years right i mean it's it's an investment and that's the thing about stage managing that is different from acting is that you it's a it's a longer trajectory you're looking for you're not if if you like stage managing in the theater then you're looking to sort of do this for a very long time right and so you need to take sort of that pace. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a different pace than an actor who wants to sort of get out of the ensemble, get into a principal contract so they can get a movie right. or film. And then, you know, they want to take larger leaps. Mm-hmm. The stage managing, there's, there's not that many leaps to take.
1: Right. You can go from second to first, mm-hmm. <laughs> then from first to PSM. That's it. Why and that's now? about it. And then there's a handful though who who are like you who are now production supervisors Yeah, but that's companies. like not something you that's not a career you can sort of plan on. Right. That's a career that happens. I right.
0: mean that's a that's a job that sort of shows up in front of you. Right. So I mean stage managing is a career you can sort of plan on because right. shows are always gonna happen and they always have to hire a certain amount of stage
1: managers, but shows don't have to hire a production supervisor. So so from Footloose, did you go to another Steve Beckler show or did you go elsewhere? Uh,
0: from Footloose, I did, what was next? I think it was Thoroughly Modern Million La Jolla. Bonnie Becker was the first assistant on Scarlet Pimpernel. Mm-hmm. And she and I got along great as well. And then she, she was making her move out of the assistant world into the stage manager mm-hmm. world. And so she called me and asked me to, do Thoroughly Modern Millie with her in La Jolla mm-hmm. before it came to Broadway. And I said, yes. Now, mind you, I had only ever done Footloose as a second. And Bonnie was asking me to do Thoroughly Modern Millie as a first. And automation-wise, it was just as big as Scarlet Pimpernel. Right. It was just a little clunkier because it was doing being done at La Jolla, sure. which it, it was even a little too big for La Jolla. Gotcha.
1: So presented its own challenge um,
0: yeah, for that alone. In that atmosphere, it was challenging. And then La Jolla offers you, you know, several interns and PAs. You can have six, you can have however, however many you want, um, basically. Um, and so we had a lot. Gotcha. Uh, and so it was another sort of hurry-up-and-learn experience because Bonnie, Steve is, I have to say, the the. Major differences I see between Bonnie and Steve's, although both of them have like super, are are the best in the business. Um, But Steve sort of edges Bonnie out in the way he wanted, he loved the interaction uh, with the director and the actors. And so when the director stepped away, he loved being the stage manager that rehearsed the understudies and had conversations about the show and had long, you know, he loved to step into that role of really sort of being the, um, uh, almost the associate director in the building. Right. Bonnie technically was so overly prepared when she walked into a tech. I had never imagined somebody could be as prepared as Bonnie was walking into wow. a tech. So technically, and that's not to say Bonnie didn't have great relationships with the actors. She has sure. an amazing relationship with the actors. But, but she excelled at this technical side of things. Yeah, which is, explains why Bonnie has the biggest shows that have hit Broadway in the last 15 years. Sure. I mean, she, she does technically very difficult shows. right. Because she's so, she's got the rep of right. being being able to handle massive shows. She did Billy Elliot, she did Legally
1: Blonde, she's doing School of Rock, she's done big shows. Millie, yeah. she did Millie on Broadway. So, but she at this point was moving into that into the She was stepping into that, so she asked me to do it, and went to La Jolla and did right. that with her, and
0: came out of that relatively unscathed. Um, and uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> shortly shortly after. <laughs> Bonnie and Steve were buds. They were pals. And Steve got a Neil Simon play called 45 Seconds from Broadway. Mm -hmm. Bonnie got the word that Thoroughly Modern Millie was moving. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie and Steve were talking on the phone one day. And Steve said, I'm going to call Jay and offer him this play. And she said, oh, that's interesting because I'm going to call Jay and offer him Thoroughly Modern Millie. Oh, dear. So who'd you go with? (laughs) Steve said, well, I'll let you call him and tell him that. (laughs) <laughs> he has two shows and at that point I was like wow this is like this is like going to be the best day this is the best day of my, sure. day of my life as sure. far as my career goes yeah. I got
1: two offers in one day amazing and oh I thought you were saying they were going to be competing times and you had to choose one no they they were oh they were okay. yeah but <laughs> they were
0: such so, they were so close Steve and Bonnie yeah uh, that they were neither threatened yeah by the other gotcha and Steve said well tell him he has a play as well so she called and said, "You know, blah blah." Um, and I ended up actually taking the play, oh. the Neil Simon play, just because I Neil Simon was somebody who I had a lot of I paid a lot of attention to growing sure. up. And of, course, of course, he had mastered So I wanted to be like in the room with yeah. Neil Simon. Of course. So, so it's a whole other skill it? set that's a whole yeah exactly and it was a play shockingly different skill set and it was a play and it uh, you know it felt good to be back in the room with Steve in that kind of atmosphere which is where Steve was like a rock really a rock star Mm -hmm. and um, 9-11 happened and it decimated theater and so our play did not last and Thoroughly Modern really went on to win the Tony Award and (laughs) ran for several years whoops mistake um But if I hadn't done the play and it hadn't failed, Hairspray would not have been on the horizon. Oh, my God. So it was literally right after that play closed that Steve got Hairspray and called and said, we're doing Hairspray.
1: Amazing. And that, of course, was probably an incredible experience. Incredibly hard, I'm
0: assuming. Difficult. um, But so, yeah, I mean, Hairspray was not a show. We we all loved what we were doing in the room. Mm -hmm. We all thought it was going to be... Like so much fun to do, mm-hmm. but we had no idea if
1: the sense of humor was going to work.
0: Oh, really? Um, yeah, we it's didn't... so funny
1: because in hindsight, of course, everyone's yeah. like it was amazing. Yeah, we weren't
0: we weren't sure, and we went to Seattle. We took it to Seattle, the Fifth Avenue, mm-hmm. and we're not sold out. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, we got there. It was a, a, a sort of a, a difficult process. There was a lot of automation again. It was you know very complicated show, and. We were not sold out in the first, you know, week or so. We still weren't sure. Audiences seemed to be loving it, but we weren't sure. And I think it was like in either the second or third week of our Seattle run Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden it just blew up. Oh wow. And we had heard that people were like lining up around the block. And you know, I mean all of a sudden it was just and nothing had changed. It wasn't like you were For pre- us, changing previews. Or, I mean, it was just word of mouth sort of caught fire. And interesting. People were sort of saying, this show is actually quite special. Right. Because it did sound like, you know, it's so funny. When I got Hairspray, I told my friend I'm going to do a musical about the movie Hairspray. And I right. was like, well, that sounds dumb. <laughs> well, I was like, well, we'll see. <laughs> I think it's actually going to be quite good. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so... Seattle was what was what it was, right. and we got to New York, and still we were like, okay, well, Seattle liked it, right. but well, New York liked it.
1: Um, and... It was a huge tragedy. Everything went... Yeah, everything went- <laughs> It was a calamity. Closed before it opened. Yes. <laughs> so, but you were on sort of another huge hit that lasted... I mean, how long did that last? Must forever? It lasted for five years. And you were on <laughs> it for five years? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um,
0: Steve left after four months mm-hmm. because it was clear that he was not going to get to do the part of the job that he loved, which was rehearse the understudies right. and get, you know, and maybe set another production. Gotcha. And there was an associate director in the building who we all loved and mm-hmm. respected, but Steve was like,
1: you know, That's he's, what he he's got to, my job. Right. So he left. Which is an interesting point because. For a long time, I mean, the School of Steve Beckler, it was pretty much it was a rare it was a rare occurrence to have somebody on full time who was an associate mm. director, or you it know, was, a resident director. Or, it know. was unheard of in, in the states. Right. I think they did it in London. Yeah, it was very because in the UK, stage managers are pretty much deputy stage managers, who yeah. are on cues almost exclusively, in, in doing scheduling tech and and doing schedule and tech things yeah. like that. Yeah. But when it came to the creative side of things, it was pretty much an an Ameri- well North American uh, thing. Yeah. To maintain a show like that. Exactly.
0: Um, for a stage manager to do all of that. And right. Steve had also, he done many Neil Simon plays. He's done many. She, he ended up setting a lot of the tours mm-hmm. for a lot of the hits that he had done throughout the years. I mean, Steve's career started with No No Net in 1972. Wow. He did the original production of Grease. And he, I mean, his the list of his shows was, when I met him in 97 was remarkable. Sure. Um, and it just continued to sort of grow.
1: Gotcha. So then did you go with him somewhere else? No, I you...
0: stayed. Um, he he basically said, I'm going to go do this other show mm-hmm. and I don't think it's a good idea for both of us to leave at the same time. Gotcha. That's how I remember the story. He would tell it differently. <laughs> he would tell you that I turned him down, <laughs> which I did not. Okay. Um, but, so he left and... Uh, we had another stage manager come in, and Hairspray was very, very difficult. And I was also having sort of a sort of a personal crisis in my life. Mm-hmm. And so, after about another three or four months without Steve there, I decided I should leave as well. Gotcha. And so I I actually saw it through the Tony Awards, and then
1: the week after the Tony Awards, I left as well. Gotcha. For another job, or just you just left?
0: I just left because I felt like you know things had been moving so fast. Right. Once I sort of started Scarlet Pimpernel, things sort of went boom, 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 boom. Sure. And I hadn't really taken a breath. Sure. And so I promised myself I would take a few months off. Gotcha. And that trust that on the other side of that six or however many
1: months. There would be another job, and, and it is something to learn because I think when you're a freelancer, you often, if you are without work for a short time, you think it'll never happen again.
0: Yeah, and you like hear about your friend who got a big show, and you're like, damn, like right. uh, you know that panicky sort of feeling right. of I'm never going to work again if right. I don't take this next show. I'm never going to work again. That's it. And there's always another show. Right. Um, you just have to you have to take care of life at the same time. Yeah, it's a hard lesson to learn. It is a hard lesson. To and literally, almost to the day, four month, it was four months after I sort of decided I'm going to take a break, Bonnie called and said, do you want to do Bombay Dreams? Amazing. And I said, yes. Bombay Dreams was an amazing show to do. And again, massive. Technically, it mm-hmm. was massive. It was, and it was the Cadillac of sets. I right. mean, I just, it was incredible. It had, you know, we had 36 jets of water that shot 30 feet in the air <laughs> wow. and landed on the stage for for these dancers to dance in the water so cool on this what they called sort of an automotive finish deck and this group i mean it was just in one of the most gorgeous
1: shows i've ever seen so like a really exciting thing to come back to yeah to sort of
0: beautiful over. beautiful show and really like uh, Like to have a cast full of Southeast Asians, Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, or at least the leads, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of embrace this their culture on Mm -hmm. Broadway, and then to see the audience embrace the show and walk in in beautiful like saris, were walking in the door every night and just dressed to the t's to come see their culture on stage. That's pretty special. Was kind of incredible that's amazing I had never experienced that kind of love in the theater between the audience and the cast and the cast sort of within themselves because the outside forces on this show
1: mm-hmm.
0: were working against it basically sure. oh really yeah people thought people assumed that it was a f- sort of somewhat racist that we were sort of uh, doing a
1: Bollywood sort of show yeah up. doing a send up right
0: rather than being true to it interesting and and the reviews were not great mm-hmm. and so there was a lot of outside pressure that it wasn't you know to close mm-hmm. and that it wasn't going to be a success mm-hmm. and despite that it ran for like a year oh wow which was more than we all anticipated and the the sort of the the care that they took everybody took with each other inside the theater was unlike any show i'd ever experienced
1: that's so amazing yeah what a cool experience yeah so at this point you've done now 3 Shows with heavy automation. Yeah. How was your training up on something like that? Because I think that it's, it's something that if you don't experience, it's a little bit, you can be fearful yeah. of it. Yeah. It's something that can hurt people. Yeah. It's something yeah. that can injure people. And you take responsibility. You say, go. It yeah. goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: I, you know, I like math. Mm-hmm. I I loved math in school. And that it's kind of an algorithm kind of math problem. Sure. Um, that you're sort of deciding when something leaves when you know you know you're sort of understanding that this piece of furniture has to get out of the way of that piece of furniture before this one can leave you know and so it's these pieces this tetris large game of tetris mm-hmm. that you sort of put together so for me it was fascinating right and Steve on hairspray especially you know didn't mind handing over his automation paperwork to me because right. I was on the deck I was working with the carpenter's I was sort of seeing how each piece moved. I was naming the cues. Mm-hmm. I was giving them a color. I was doing all of the automation paperwork, uh, which he happily turned over to me. Bonnie is very much the opposite. Bonnie very much wanted to have con- absolute con- sure. you know, control so that she was intimate with what was about to happen. Right. When she threw a switch, she wanted to know exactly what was happening. Sure, As does Steve, but he's fine to sort of let me, sort of hands it and right. and uh and think about it and redo it if it's necessary right. or, or give it some thought and give it a
1: different number give it a different color if it needs it and you know all those kind of things sure Plus, so now when you train someone to call a show perhaps who hasn't used automation is there a sort of do you have a checklist in your brain about how you get them there or mm. how do you alleviate fears i just remember for me when i was sort of getting into it it's it's just such a like a fantasy of a thing where you yeah. say go and something moves yeah. and it can kill someone and it's good luck everyone. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's... I mean, do I have a checklist? I guess n- no. I don't really have a checklist. I... I I think the checklist is like: uh, Do we have enough people on deck who mm-hmm. have walk headsets on who can say stop? For well, sure. <laughs> like that's that's the that's really the the safeguard. Yeah, is that uh, everybody's on high alert yeah. and you if you see anything, don't be afraid to say stop um, or or hold, <laughs> um, depending on how serious the the issue is. I do remember when I sat down to call Footloose for the very first time with without any real experience at calling a big show, I can tell you that the, the first five minutes of Footloose, there were 100 cues in the first five minutes of Footloose with automation. Wow. And I literally wanted to cry and leave. Right. Um, <laughs> I wanted both of those things to happen yeah. very badly. And Steve wouldn't let me do either one of those right. things. And the once I figured out that I wasn't gonna get to get out of the seat, there was mm-hmm. no way out of the seat, right. I got mad. And when I got mad, I started taking control of the show. Sure. And taking control of how I called the show. Sure. And that was, for me, that was key. Yeah. Like, you you don't get to leave. (laughs) And so it made me mad. And so I called it better. Fury, that's how you call it. Yeah. And so I started to get on top of the wave, as they say.
1: Right. Well, that's really cool. So now your Bombay Dreams closes. You are now in the heights.
0: No, after that, Bonnie and I did Glass Menagerie together with Jessica Lang and Christian, well, it wasn't initially Christian Slater, it was Dallas Roberts to mm-hmm. begin with, and then it was Christian Slater. And that came with its sort of fair share of um, challenges sure. as well. When did you step into the production stage manager role? Within the heights. Oh, within the heights. Because I did a couple more shows with Bonnie. I did Lestat with Bonnie, which we thought was going to be a huge hit, um, and clearly was not. <laughs> And then she didn't really have a place for me after Lestat, because mm-hmm. Legally Blonde had done a workshop, mm-hmm. and they had sort of arranged things, and then Bonnie got offered Legally Blonde, and so that was the only slot that was really left. So she took it and then said, I don't really have a slot for you on the next one. And I said, that's okay. I've done, at that point, I had done like seven or eight Broadway shows. That was amazing. And I should, my resume should speak for itself. Sure.
1: Self-taught,
0: Jason Bassett Self-taught, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I had developed relationships with general managers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was like, I need to sort of test, test where I'm at. Yeah. And along came Grey Gardens. Um, and it was uh, with Judy Schoenfeld, who had not done a Broadway show. She, had, she was a PSM on Grey Gardens mm. off-Broadway and I think had done some other things regionally and off Broadway, but didn't have the experience of running a Broadway show. Oh, so actually for the first time in my career, I was looked at as the person who had experience mm-hmm. and would be a good match for Judy when it came to being her first. Right. They asked me to come along and I said, yes. And uh, it was not too long after we started, well, we left rehearsal, we started tech and Steve Beckler was working with Walter Bobby, who was working. They were working on oh the record, the show about records that was made from a
1: movie. Uh, I
0: can't remember. No idea. Anyway, <laughs> they were working together, I think, in Boston or something. And they and the uh, Aaron Craig, who was the producer of In the Heights off Broadway or general manager, producer, general manager, can't remember, was looking for a stage manager. Gotcha. And for in the Heights and they both Walter, Bobby and Steve Beckler said, Jason, he's, he's ready to make the move into PSM and he's been, he, he has, comes with a lot of experience. Sure. So. so she got in touch with me. Uh, we had an interview and then she put me in touch with Tommy Kale and Tommy is like such an old school, like, like for somebody who didn't have a whole heck of a lot of experience when he did in the Heights. He had a heck of a lot of knowledge. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like, he understood the tradition of theater. He understood the... He just came with so much. He was such an old soul, Mm -hmm. as if he'd been doing it for decades. Which is really rare. Which was incredible on some level. Because I had... At that point, I had been doing it for like 10 years or more. And he knew as much, if not more, than me. Amazing. Just because he was such a student of life, Mm -hmm. of theatrical life, Mm -hmm. um, that... Uh, he and I hit it off famously, right at, right out of the gate. And Great. he went to Aaron and said, this is my guy. Amazing. And so then I had to sort of get out of Great Gardens because right. we were in tech. And I went to Alan Williams and said, I would like to do in the Heights. Mm-hmm. Who was, Alan Williams was the general manager of Great Gardens. And I said, I would like to do in the Heights. But if you, if you feel like it's not appropriate for me to leave Great Gardens, I won't do it. And he said, let me think about it. He went home. He talked to Beth Williams, his wife, who had seen a a workshop of In the Heights, and she said to him, you have to let him out. It's it's gonna be a great show. And so he came back and told me that story the next day (laughs) and said, so we're letting you out. And I was like, well, I've never met your wife, but it's tell her very
1: much. (laughs) Um,
0: And the rest is sort of history. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to your podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Live by visiting our website at www.theatreartlive.com and you can also follow us on social media and leave your questions and comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter or YouTube. We want to thank David Zayer for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Zerata who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Live podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around
1: the world.